Amen, amen. Thank you. Thank you for leading us in worship this morning. It's good to have everybody here this morning and to be worshiping together here at Bridge. Uh, always a blessing to be with our family together, certainly this week as we head into Thanksgiving. And uh, if you're new with us, if you're with us on live stream or you're new with us today, we are at actually the last two sermons in a series that's called The Gospel According to Moses, Discovering the Lost Language of Salvation. I was just thinking as the team was that last song, you know, great is our Lord and praise is on our hearts. And um, praise is contagious, isn't it? Praise is contagious. But there's something else contagious too, right? How about complaining? Is complaining contagious? Complaining is contagious. All I have to say is, can you believe that? And um, I'll certainly have a few people join in and tell me, can you believe that? Uh, we're, we live in a culture uh, where complaining is all around us. I, I just thought, well, let me go on Google and just put complaining is contagious. So I did that, and here's what came up. Complaining is contagious, how to stay immune to it. Complaining is contagious, it does not solve problems. Complaining is contagious. Yes, it's more contagious than the flu. And I, we could go on and on, right? Today, the passage we're going to be looking at talks about complaining, but it talks not just about complaining, but what is at the root of complaining? Uh, what, what is in the heart uh, when we have a complaining spirit? And we're going to be looking at that today. But let me just bring you up to where we're at, because last week was the last chapter of Exodus, four, of Exodus, which was Exodus 40, and it had God coming in his glory into the tabernacle and his presence being with the people. Very powerful that God's presence is with his people, and we know that through the Spirit, God's presence is with us here today. Now we're going to be moving out of Exodus into the book of Numbers for the next two weeks, and uh, today's text is Numbers 11, and what you need to know about this text is it's 50 days after the New Year celebration, 50 days after God's presence has come into the tabernacle where the cloud of glory uh, has descended. And now the cloud lifts from the tabernacle and the Israelites set out on a three-day journey to a new camp in the desert of Paran. Now, just remember, if you could put the camp up, that picture of the camp, just remember how large this group is, Right? You know, it, it, sometimes we miss the fact, we think it's like a little family gathering. It's about two million people who get up and move. So think about that. Think about what that takes for that to happen. So the cloud goes up and they get themselves ready to move. And you can put the next map up. Then you can put the map up. So here they are at Mount Horeb and Sinai. And so you'll see here there's the different trips and different places where they've gone. I told you last week it's about 36 different times in 40 years that they travel as a group. But this first part is moving up to Kibroth Hatava. Now, whether or not that's the way you pronounce Hebrew or not, that's how the Italian pronounces it, so <laughs> just the way it is. But, but anyway, that's where we're at. And um, this, is, this is where we're, we're going to be at today. And this... This particular word uh, has a, a meaning to it. It's called the graves of craving, and we'll see what that really means. But what we're going to have now is I'm going to have Barb come up, and she's going to read the passage to you, and then we'll go from there. 
Numbers 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me, give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me, if I have found favor in your eyes. And do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it in them. They will share the burden of the people with you, so you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord the Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for, will not eat it for just one day, or two days, or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before Him, saying, "Why did we ever leave Egypt?" But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they, would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp, as far as a day's walk in any direction. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than ten homers. Then they spread them, all out, spread them out all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore the place was, was named Kibroth Hattabah, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. From Kib Kibroth Hattabah, the people traveled to Hazroth and stayed there. Amen. The reading of the word. I love it. He starts out with the rabble. Isn't that a great name? The rabble. The rift raft. What are you talking about? 
Well, what he's talking about there is that there's a mixed multitude that went out with the crowd. It wasn't just the Israelites that went out. It seems as though many of the people who saw God at work and saw his miracles decided, wait a second, we're not staying with the God of Pharaohs. We're going to head out with the God of Israel. So there was a whole group of people. I don't know if they were adventurers or they were just curious about God or they just saw that at work. But this, was a, this word means it was a mixed multitude that went out with, uh, the, with Israel into the Exodus itself. And uh, what it says here is that this crowd uh, began to crave other food. They began to crave other food. And uh, that idea of craving is a powerful desire for something. It's a powerful desire for something. And in this case, a variety of food instead of only manna. Um, think about that for a second. So here they were. They'd seen all this happen. They're out in the desert. These are people who could go back, right? So in some ways, they're complaining with the idea that maybe we can go back. The Israelites know they can't. But what happens in this camp, right? There's this desire that's brought on by sort of a nostalgia, this idea of a sentimental longing for foods they had eaten and enjoyed while in Egypt. And as the rabble complained about their discontent over only manna, their complaining spread like wildfire throughout the camp. Right? Think about that. Think about that in the context of you seeing complaining even in your own life. And so what happens is, rather than being grateful in the wilderness with God's miracle provision, they choose to remember only the taste of different foods. They become discontent and ungrateful to God and to God's mercy, kindness, His provision for them. Think about it. Imagine for a second you are God. Imagine for a second you're God. Now, not Jim Carrey and Bruce Almighty, okay? Do you guys know about that? Anyway, not you are God, okay? And in answer to the cries, you have delivered this people from 400 years of slavery. You have, with a series of powerful miracles, delivered the Israelites. You've immediately saved them from destruction at the hands of Pharaoh's army by dividing the Red Sea. And then after they get by, allowing the waters to engulf Pharaoh's army. You provided water and food for 2 million people in the wilderness for over a year now. You've forgiven them and renewed your covenant with them when they've rebelled against you. And just recently, your presence, which you promised, has now filled the tabernacle in a cloud of glory. You protect them at night with a pillar of fire, and during the day your cloud is ever-present. And here they are. 50 days after that happened, and they are complaining, and they are discontent, and it's spreading like wildfire across this 2 million people. Think about that for a second. If you're God, what would be your reaction? If you're Moses who's leading them, what would be your reaction? And, and that's really what we're, we're looking at right now. That's really what we're seeing as we go through this text. Because we have someone who goes to God with their complaints. Moses goes to God with his complaints. The people complain about God. 
Moses complains to God. There's a big difference there. Complaining to God, that's prayer. Complaining about God, that's disrespect. That's ungratefulness. And that's what is going on as we, we look at this, this situation because the next thing we see is Moses going to God and he shares his heart. He shares his questions. He shares his feelings to God. And after some strong words to God, to the extent that in Moses' sense, God has abandoned him, he suggests God end his life. But then he adds quickly, if I have found favor, if I have found favor, Lord, what's he saying? Help, 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 Lord. That's prayer. Help, Lord, or my leadership will go down in flames and I will be ruined. That's what's on his heart. Here is something I think is so wonderful. How wonderful are God's first words to Moses after this prayer? Bring me 70 elders from among the people, and I will share some of the power of the Spirit on you and give it to them so they can lead with you, so they can share your burden of leadership. No anger. No, how dare you speak to me this way, but a direct answer to the heart of the issue where Moses was saying, I need more help. I need more help. He answers that. It's very powerful. I think about Paul when he says in 2 Corinthians, this idea that God's strength has been made perfect in weakness. God's strength is made perfect in weakness. Where Moses is coming to is that he, is, he, ha- he doesn't have it. He can't do it in his own strength. Can you imagine walking that camp and out of, it says out of every door of the camp, people were wailing and complaining. Can you imagine that type of walk around the camp? And you're the leader, and what are you going to do about it? You certainly can't answer their need. And that's the idea. So God answers Moses, but now he's going to answer the people. And he says to Moses, tell the people to consecrate themselves. Consecrate. Consecrate. What does that mean? There's another word for it, sanctify themselves. And this is an important, very important to know the difference here because this is what's going to happen for the people who consecrate themselves. There's going to be a different ending than for those who do not because consecrate yourself means to give priority to spiritual things over physical things, to give priority to spiritual things over physical things. And so God says, that's what he says first. And then he says, now let me tell you what I'm going to do. I've heard your cries of self-pity. I've seen the tears of ungrateful and complaining people. See, God heard their claim. They were saying, well, it was well with us in Egypt. And they knew. Or maybe they had deluded themselves into thinking this was true because they knew it wasn't true. They knew that they had suffered So much oppression for so many years. But here they were with selective memories, right? A selective memory. They were twisting the past to justify their complaints. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked at the past differently than it really was? Have you looked at your teenage years without all the angst that was a part of your teenage years? 
I sometimes am with people and they haven't ever gone out of that. They're still talking about the glory days of their teenage years and their adult lives are miserable and a mess. And so this is the idea here. And what does God say? He says, I will give you your cravings. I will give you your cravings. I will give you the desires of your hearts. I will provide meat, not for a day, but for a whole month. So much meat that you will become sick of it. You will find this provision not a blessing because it represents a rejection of my care and provision for you. It represents you making your cravings more important than my love and my mercy towards you. Moses hears this, and he has what I would believe is a natural reaction. He's trying to understand how God would perform this promise. And Moses says, you understand, God, there are 600,000 men. Add up the children and the wives, and we're at about 2 million here, and you're saying you're going to provide meat for all these people not just for one day, but for a whole month. How amazing is that? Think about that. I think he reacted in the same way the disciples reacted after Jesus said to them, we need to feed the 5,000 people, right? How is this going to happen? And here's what God says. God says, is my arm too short, Moses? What is he really saying there? He's saying, am I not able to make this happen, Moses? After all you've seen, am I not able to make this happen? Is there anything impossible for me? Well, okay, Moses, let's see. Let's see if this is going to happen. And I want to read now, again, this particular portion because I think it's important. Here's what God does. Now, a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It scattered them up to two cubits deep all around the camp. As far as a day's walk in any direction... All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. By while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could become consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named, and I'll say it, graves of cravings because they buried the people who had craved other food. So miraculously, God directs a huge number of quail to the camp of Israel. Now, here's what's interesting. The, the quail camp all around the camp. They don't come into the camp. They're all around the camp. They're on the perimeter. And here's what's interesting. When the Holy Spirit was poured out, it drew men into the center of the camp, into God's presence. To get the quail, they had to go outside the camp away from God's presence. And there was so much quail, listen to this, that they could go a day's journey all around the camp. A day's journey is a number of miles all around the camp, not to mention the, the quail were two cubits deep. That means it was, they were 36 inches deep. That's a high. And no one gathered less than 10 homers, which is 60 bushels. Think about that for a second. I love what Alan says in the quote that I have there. The scene must have been similar to a riot. People screaming, 
birds flapping their wings everywhere, the pell-mell movement of a meat-hungry people in the sea of birds. I mean, just get that picture, because that's what they were doing. Can you imagine? They were trying to get these birds. These birds are trying to fly up. They were catching these birds. They were, oh, my goodness, unbelievable. So earlier, the people making the golden calf had what we would call an orgy of paganism. In this situation, they had an orgy of gluttony. Listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 106, 13 to 15, describes the situation. But they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. And another expression of that is he sent a leanness of soul to them. So there were many who did not listen to God's warning to consecrate themselves. See, here's where the difference comes in. To give priority to spiritual things and not physical. And the ones who did not consecrate themselves, who just went into this with their cravings, not thanking God, just going with a spirit of gluttony, they came directly in contact with a plague that came from the quail itself. And that's why it's called the graves of craving, this particular area. You see, when we allow ungodly cravings to rule our lives, God may send what we crave, and we wind up with a leanness of our souls in that context because we are not trusting. We are ungrateful. As we do that, we, as we talked about last week, there's a grieving and quenching of the spirit. We begin to move away from God outside the camp rather than into the presence of God. And these cravings begin to take over our lives. And they begin to express themselves in all kinds of different ways, in our relationships, in the way we think, in what we do. And that's what we need to do right now. We need to ask ourselves, do I find myself discontent and complaining about many things? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Because what's going on in that complaining and discontentment? You know, I'll just mention a few things. There's so many others. But what are the things that I desire that are even good things that become cravings, that move us away from a thankfulness to God and a trusting in God to ungratefulness and complaining about God. Well, maybe it's success, or maybe a good marriage, or maybe our children's health and happiness, or maybe getting into the best college, or maybe it's a friendship, a good reputation, being a star athlete, being known as attractive. We can go through a whole list in our lives of all these things that can become cravings. Originally, they're a desire. And James 1 tells us that there's nothing wrong with the desire. It's what we do with that desire. And if that desire begins to take rule over our lives, and we begin to get discontented, and we begin to say, God doesn't love me. This is what I'm demanding from God. I have moved to a different position. And that's when the heart becomes complaining that's when we complain about God rather than going to God in prayer, trusting him as we pray 
that he will hear our prayer and he will answer us. So I, I need to ask myself this question as I was doing this, and I believe we all do. Am I complaining about God? Am I complaining about God? Am I not going to him? Am I complaining about him in my heart? Am I falling into self-pity? Anybody had a pity party lately? Am I falling into self-pity? I'm not believing that God loves me, that God's with me, that he will provide for me. I'm tempted to twist the past with selective memories to justify my complaints. Oh, it was much better then. Things were going way better. You know, when I came to the Lord, everything turned around. I remember, you know, so many times when this happened to me, even when I first became a Christian. Oh, I became a Christian, I got to pay taxes. There's something wrong with that. You know, I, there's, there's so many things because God comes into our lives and he begins to reveal things to us and he has something for us. And, and sometimes we are going to have a wilderness journey in that, Right? Sometimes there will be pain and there will be suffering. But am I going to trust God in the midst of that? Because that's where my faith grows. We have to ask ourselves these questions. They're serious questions. What about this church? When people come into this church... What do they hear? Do they see a bunch of people complaining about God? That would be horrible, wouldn't it? But what if they came in and they saw people who were just pouring out their hearts to God in the way Moses did, and they said, I didn't know you could pray to God like that. You can really pray to God like that. Yes, you can pray to God like that. Because he already knows what's in your heart. Why would you not pray it? And let him speak to you in the depths of that as only he can. Let us not be a church complaining about God, but let us be a church complaining to God together. Let's go to the throne in prayer together. What's it like in your family? What's it like with your children and you? Where's the spirit at there? Children, are you complaining about your parents? Other other, especially our, our teenagers in particular. I know that I was a teenager once, not that long ago. And uh, it was really good to complain about my parents. We had a great time complaining about our parents. It's only now that I am so thankful for the parents I had. But what is our spirit and what are we doing? We have to ask ourselves those things. A good question to make. You see, only the Lord can save us from the graves of cravings because they bring leanness of soul. We, we get those cravings. It's just like an addict who gets what they want, right? An addict gets their dope, but then they know the result of that. It's more emptiness. It's more torture. It's more bondage. It, it, you know, it just becomes this, I got to get it. They probably understand a little bit more than I, I guess, but maybe we should have Sinners Anonymous in the same way. Ask ourselves that question, because only God can, can deliver us from this. And so where do we go? Well, we, 
are we seeking our happiness apart from the Lord and what He provides? And I think this is where I want to end today by us looking at what satisfies our soul. What satisfies our soul? And I love John 6, 27 through 35. Jesus answers this in a very powerful way. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, believe in the one he has sent. Believe, believe. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Hallelujah. He is the one who satisfies our soul's desires. In Matthew 6, he said, Seek first the kingdom, and I will give you all these things. It's Jesus and what he's done for us, that he is the bread of life that we can always go. We know we have someone that we can trust, someone who has gone to the cross itself for us, someone who has risen from the dead for us, someone who says, I am with you to the end of the age, someone who will never leave us or forsake us, someone who enters in because he can sympathize with all the brokenness we experience because he experienced it himself. Hallelujah. This is how our soul is satisfied. It's coming back again and again and feeding on the bread of life, allowing the Spirit who is the living water within us to do the things that only the Spirit can, to remind us again and again who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ, what our inheritance is, what our future is, what power we have in prayer right now, how we can live lives that impact the eternal destiny of other people. Hallelujah. That he can come into those hard places, even those places of suffering, and his presence, his presence alone brings comfort that we never knew we could have, brings realizations and epiphanies that we never knew we could have, brings a different perspective, an eternal perspective that we never knew we could have. So that's what I am crying out because in my own heart I needed this. When I got to the end, I needed this. Don't you need this? Because this stops me from complaining. This stops me from discontentment because I come and I know again because the Spirit is unleashed within me as I humble myself, as I cry out, then these truths begin to fill my heart and my mind and I become a person of thanksgiving not a person of complaining. I become a person who has the joy of the Lord moving in them that it will become their strength. So I'm encouraging you today. Come, read this passage. Pray through it. If you're someone who's a complainer, pray through this. Go to Matthew 6. 
go through some passages that really speak to these issues. If you're feeling that leanness of soul, it might be that it's because of the cravings, those desires. Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart in deep ways today. We're going into the week of Thanksgiving. Let this be a time where through the week I begin to recognize the things that I can be thankful for. And as I begin making that list up and I begin repeating it, let the Thanksgiving fill my heart. That on Thanksgiving Day, it's not an exercise for five minutes that everybody writes down something they're thankful for. But it's actually coming from a heart that's been experiencing Thanksgiving because our souls are satisfied to the richest affair through Jesus Christ. That's why the psalmist in Psalm 103 could say, Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise the Lord.